James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Outlasting Suffering. Outlasting Suffering. Patience is one of those characteristics that we appreciate more in other people than we do in ourselves. Parents on a long road trip, having been subjected to mile after mile of are we there yet, will plead with their children for the love of all that is holy. Please be patient. Maybe you found yourself in a situation where you are thankful for a supervisor who is patient with you as you slowly learn a new technology, especially if your coworkers are learning it more quickly than you are. On the other hand, if somebody tells you to be patient, your first reaction may not be one of appreciation. You you find yourself instead maybe defending yourself, justifying your exasperation more so than expressing gratitude to the person reminding you of the benefits of being patient. James, who was likely the brother of Jesus, was writing to people who could have easily rationalized their impatience. Some in the community were suffering, very likely under the socioeconomic disparities so common in the Roman Empire. They had placed their hope in Messiah Jesus, whose return would set the world right. Maybe they were getting tired of waiting. In these verses, towards the end of his letter, James encouraged suffering Christians to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, given the suffering that is common to all of us in this life, is this appeal to patience tone deaf? Or worse, is James colluding with oppression and exploitation when he urges suffering people to be patient? Is this a first century equivalent of Dr. King's rebuke from that Birmingham prison cell? Justice too long delayed is justice denied. These are reasonable questions that we would ask. But I want to suggest that the answer to each is no. The context of this passage makes it clear that James is not conspiring with the oppressive status quo. 
You see, immediately preceding these verses, James leveled a scathing attack against those who had built their wealth on the backs of the poor. In verses 3 through 4 of chapter 5, James writes, Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure during the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So seriously does he take exploitation that James says by their actions, the wealthy have, quote, condemned and murdered the righteous one. So I would suggest that given his condemnation of the wicked status quo, James's encouragement to be patient in response to suffering is something very different than complicity with injustice. He cannot be telling those who are suffering to make peace with their suffering, to content themselves only with some future spiritual deliverance. Rather, these verses offer us a different kind of exhortation. One that I want to put in front of us today very simply like this. Outlast suffering patiently. This was a surprising call James gave to the early Christians. And it's a call extended to us as well. Outlast suffering Patiently. Now, as we have already acknowledged, the idea of patience can seem out of step with our actual circumstances. So let's fill this in a little bit. How? How do we outlast suffering with patience? Let let me suggest that we find at least three ways that we can do this in these verses. First, we remember the ancestors. Second, we anticipate Christ's return. And finally, we strengthen our hearts. There are past, future, and present orientations to our patients. We remember, we anticipate, and we strengthen our hearts today. So first, outlast suffering patiently by remembering the ancestors. In order to frame his understanding of patience, James holds up the prophets of the Old Testament and then the person of Job. I think this matters because the experience of suffering by the prophets and by Job were different experiences. The prophets, by and large, suffered for speaking God's truth to a people who didn't want to hear God's truth. They they suffered because people heard things they didn't want to hear and responded negatively, sometimes violently. Job, on the other hand, seems to stand for suffering that is more arbitrary in nature. I think there were probably those in the churches James was writing to who understood this. Some of them were suffering because of their faith. They were public in their allegiance to Jesus in a culture that required allegiance to the Caesar. And so they had experienced suffering, pushback, repercussions because of their witness, like the prophets. And then there were others who were just born into situations that felt very arbitrary in nature, where they suffered more than 
did their neighbors. I think we understand this. There is no one size fits all when it comes to suffering. One person may be born into poverty. Another person finds themselves maneuvering systems of injustice. Another person experiencing chronic illness. Suffering can be physical, emotional, financial, social, and so on. And so by lifting up the prophets and by lifting up Job, James is broadly defining suffering. Which is to say that this is for all of us. That there is not a scale or a hierarchy of suffering for who this teaching is for. It's for everybody. This is important because some of us tend to downplay the suffering we have experienced. This is my observation as a pastor. That some of us, looking to our sister or brother across the aisle, say, well, well, they have had it worse than I have had it. Or that experience was unlike anything I've ever had to go through. Or what they have to navigate is far more complex than anything I can wrap my mind around. And so I'm going to diminish my own experiences with suffering. And we do this out of love. We do this wanting to highlight and center and accommodate our sister and brother whose experience has been more drastic, more dramatic than our own, at least in our perspective. But the repercussion of this is that we introduce distance between us. We close off our hearts to our own experiences of pain, and so we are less able to empathize with that sister or brother. As a multi-ethnic church, here's one of the ways that I've seen this happen before in our, in our congregation. In a diverse space, those who have experienced more societal privilege, which can come in many different forms, as we know, will often feel as though their story, their experience of pain, needs to be kept quiet. Because that person, that more privileged person, is aware that there are others in the room whose lack of privilege has left them vulnerable to things that this person's privilege has insulated them from. Are you with me? And so this person, this privileged person, feels like, well, I need to diminish... The anguish, the grief, the sorrow, the loss that I've experienced because I look at this person and what they've experienced seems so much more difficult, so much more painful than anything I've experienced. Do you, are you with me in this dynamic? But what happens is when this person of more privilege diminishes, covers up, sweeps under the rug, forgets the pain that they've experienced, they actually are closing off their heart for those points of connection and intimacy and empathy. Now, this is not about comparing one person's suffering to somebody else's. Amen? Let's be very clear about that. But as a privileged able-bodied, white, tall male who's got about as much privilege as you can get in this society, it's really important that I am in touch with the places of pain and loss and tenderness in my own heart. Not as a comparison, but as a way to be open and tender and vulnerable to my sisters and brothers who've had very different experiences than I've had. Are you with me this morning? James says 
that all of our experiences with suffering are important. Whether it has felt arbitrary, whether it has to do with one's public witness to the faith, the experiences are different, James says, but the responses are the same. James uses the word endurance. We endure in these experiences of suffering. Now, the word for endure in the Greek is different than the word for patience at the top of our passage. Patience has to do with expectant waiting. Whereas endurance, as one commentator says, is about persevering absolutely and emphatically. Now, none of the prophets or Job endured perfectly, which ought to be really good news to all of us. They got grumpy, they complained, they got depressed, they gave up, and yet they're still held up as examples of endurance. Is that good news to anybody today? It's really good news to me. Whatever our experience of suffering, James says we look to our spiritual ancestors as examples of endurance. They show us that patience is never passive. That patience does not require that we accept a broken status quo. A few weeks ago, I was reading uh, a book, and, and one of the chapters was written by a man named Mitri Raheb, who is the Palestinian president of Dar al-Kalima University in Bethlehem. And in his chapter, uh, Dr. Raheb reflects on Matthew 5 and 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And as, as a Palestinian Christian, Dr. Raheb writes this. He says, listening to the words of Jesus through Palestinian, native North American, black South African, or aboriginal Australian ears does not make more sense of Jesus' words. He must have been mistaken. The empire inherits the land, not the meek. Jesus was mistaken because the meek are crushed. We can understand what it would be like to stand in his shoes and to to survey his experience and the experiences of the ancestors in his immediate past who went before him and say, it seems as though Jesus is wrong about who inherits the earth. But then Dr. Raheb allows his memory to go back farther. And he begins to remember all of the empires who have occupied Palestine, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome. And with that memory in mind, he writes this. When empires collapse and depart, it is the poor and the meek who remain. Who remains in this land? The meek, i.e. the powerless. Empires come and go while the meek inherit the land. Jesus' wisdom, he says, is staggering. You see the difference between focusing only on the immediacy of our circumstances and looking to our spiritual ancestors for a different perspective. This is what remembering does for us. The power of suffering has to shrink. 
because we remember that the descendants of the suffering prophets have outlasted the conquering empires. Somebody say amen. So we can outlast suffering patiently as we remember our ancestors. Secondly, we outlast suffering with patience by anticipating, by looking forward to Christ's return. Outlasting suffering with patience involves remembering the past and anticipating the future. Twice, James talks about the coming of the Lord in this passage. This is the Greek word parousia, which means presence or coming. It's where we get the language of Advent that we use so much in these days. James is looking forward to Christ's return, when his kingdom is made visible and manifest, when the dead in Christ are raised, when God's judgment is perfectly expressed for all of eternity. And and James says that when we look forward to Christ's return, we are being patient like a farmer. Any farmers in the room? Amy kind of half raised her hand. A wannabe farmer. Me too, Amy. Me too. Uh, So this is challenging for us because we are a bit removed from that agricultural uh, uh, perspective. So James says that the farmer, the patient farmer, waits on the early rains and the late rains. The patient farmer understands that seasonally there are early rains and then there are late rains. We, on the other hand, because perhaps we are not quite as closely connected with agriculture, we think that the early rains might be enough. We till up the soil, we plant the seeds, we wait for the rain, it rains, cool. What else do you need? And then nothing happens or it's really slow, the little seeds that start to sprout. And we get frustrated. We get impatient. We, we, we start grumbling because things don't look the way we think they are supposed to look. We tilled, we planted, it rained. Why isn't anything happening? Or, why is this stuff still happening? But the farmer knows that there's more rain to come. The farmer understands that that for the harvest to be ready, it's not just the early rains that are required, there's some late rains that are required as well. And so because the farmer understands this, the farmer is able to rightly interpret the time between the rains. I hope somebody got that. The, The farmer understands that because the late rains haven't come yet, his or her expectations are going to be different than when the late rains come. Biblical scholar Elsa Temez says that the the farmer here is waiting on alert. Say alert. alert. Waiting on alert. The farmer is not passive. If you've known any farmers, you, you may be able to picture them walking out into their fields, feeling the ground beneath their feet, noticing how tall the crops are getting, feeling the crops in their hand to see when the grain is ready, sometimes picking the grain and, and, and tasting it, smelling it, all of their senses engaged, alert to what is happening around them. Temez says the farmer waits with militant, indomitable patience that awaits opportune moments. 
This is really important, friends, because I think many of us imagine patience as just sitting back and waiting. That is not the kind of patience that James has in mind. It is a patience which alerts us to what's happening around us. The hope of the coming of the Lord helps us to be patient, but it also helps us to be alert. You see, the sources of suffering in this life work really hard to overwhelm us. The sources of suffering in this life work really hard to encircle us. To colonize our imaginations. To to infect our assumptions. The sources of suffering in this life work really hard to make us believe that this is always how it has been and always how how it will be. The the sources of suffering in this life, no matter what kind of suffering it is, work really hard to define your expectations, to define your beliefs, to define your prayer. This is what suffering does. It works to define our existence. This can be personal, a medical diagnosis, A friendship that is struggling, a divorce. It can be structural in nature, generational trauma, systemic racism, legacies of colonial displacement. We could go on. But Dr. Rahab discovered in his own Palestinian context that there is no source of suffering which is permanent in this life. That the meek truly do inherit the earth. Looking ahead with hope to the day of the Lord is like having a calendar. A calendar which reminds us where we are in time. Or maybe we could say when we are in time. A calendar which reminds us that we live between the early rains of Christ's resurrection and the late rains of his return. And you see, knowing where we are on the calendar, knowing when we are on the calendar, keeps us alert. We don't believe the lie that suffering is permanent, that sickness is forever, or that injustice wins. Is there any sorrow, any grief, any anguish in your life which today has made itself feel permanent to you? Can you be honest about that answer? Let the hope of our Lord's return alert you to what is true. Sickness is not the end. Healing is coming. Poverty is not the end. Prosperity is coming. Trauma is not the end. Flourishing is coming. Because the infant born in that Bethlehem stable assumed our human nature, was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and will one day come again, we know that sin and evil and injustice are not the end, are never the end. Resurrection is coming. Renewal is coming. Restoration is coming. As we anticipate the Lord's return, we are alert. 
to all the ways in which God's kingdom is breaking into our lives right now. Finally, outlast suffering patiently by strengthening our hearts. Past, remember. Future, anticipate. Today, strengthen your heart. Again, remember, patience is not passive. Even in situations of suffering, you and I have the capacity to hope. Amen? Any witnesses today? Suffering works very hard to diminish our human agency. There is real pain of sorrow, grief, and anguish. We are provoked to lament and to cry out to God. But suffering can never rob us of our humanity. We always remain image bearers of the living God. Suffering can diminish our agency. Suffering can also introduce dissension. A traumatized family turns against one another rather than to the collective source of their healing. Groups who have been oppressed fight for the empire's scraps rather than collaborating against the sources of their oppression. James recognizes this when he says, do not grumble. It's as though he's saying, don't get confused. Don't lose the plot. Don't mistake who the real enemy is here. One of the signs of healthy community is a lack of grumbling. We don't write anybody off. We don't confine anyone to their mistakes. We don't let resentment build up. And we don't leave conflict unresolved. A grumbling community, whether a family, a neighborhood, or a church, has forgotten its purpose, has gotten turned around. So, 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 church, we are held by remembering the enduring ancestors. We are anchored by anticipating our Lord's return. And so today, in the present, we can strengthen our hearts in response to suffering. But we cannot do this alone. We need each other. I really need you to remind me about my spiritual ancestors. Because I will forget. And I need you to remind me of the hope we have in the coming of the Lord. Anybody else need reminders occasionally? This is the power of testimony, amen? When you share your testimony with me, it does something for me. So I'm not a runner, but I jog a little bit. I, I try. And, and about a month ago, I was jogging along the lake. And I got to that point where I didn't really want to jog anymore, Dr. Brenda. I was kind of like, let me walk the rest of the way. And I rationalize it. I need to cool down. I need to let my muscles relax a little bit. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's really a thing. But that's where I was. That's where I was. And I was listening to a podcast, and, and, the, and the topic ended up being about this documentary about Andre Agassi, who was a tennis player, for those of you who are, you know, younger than me. Now, I don't care about tennis. I don't play tennis. It just happened to be the topic of this podcast I listened to. And as I'm getting tired and winding down and ready to start walking, the person they're interviewing is starting to talk about how fierce of a competitor Agassi was. And how he would dig deep, even if he was losing, how he would never give up, how he would find a second well of energy, how he would press on no matter the pain. And, and you know what happened to me? I, I started jogging faster and I didn't stop jogging until I reached my goal. And this is the truth. 
I started laughing out loud at myself as I was jogging. Because did I mention I don't care anything about tennis? I, I don't understand the score. I know love is in it. None of it makes sense to me. I don't care about Andre Agassi. None of But simply that little story of one person I don't care anything about digging deep. I was like, oh, I can do this too. Oh, I'm going to finish this jog. I'm ridiculous. Uh, and apparently easily manipulated. But this is what testimony does. If you're sitting on a testimony right now, you need to speak it out. If God has done something for you recently, you need to share that. If, you have, if God has brought you through an experience of suffering, if God is keeping you in your right mind in an experience of suffering, you better not keep that to yourself. You better say that thing out loud. You better share that thing with somebody because somebody is holding on by their fingernails today about to let go and your testimony, no matter how small or insignificant it seems to you, is going to be enough to carry that person through. We need each other. And we need Jesus as well. We, we, we need Jesus to strengthen our hearts. We need one another, but, but you and I always need the one who has come close to us. Strengthen your hearts, James says, for the coming of the Lord is near. The same Jesus who will return as a victorious king is also the suffering servant who came close to you. Has loneliness surrounded you lately? Your savior was betrayed and abandoned to efface his accusers alone. Have these days left you haunted by anxiety? Your Savior fell to his knees in that darkening garden, pleading with his Father as his body shuddered and quaked. Do you wonder whether you will ever find relief in a country so filled with animosity? From the very moment of his birth, your Savior was harassed, hunted, and hated. And let me be super clear. I do not mean to say that your suffering is insignificant compared to what Jesus experienced. Actually, it's just the opposite. The fact that the Son of God took on our suffering humanity means that all of your suffering matters. And it matters more profoundly than most of us have dared to imagine. Because while the the human experience of suffering is usually one of diminishment, defeat, even dehumanization, in Jesus, we find that God himself is at the center of our suffering. Never as the cause of our suffering. Never as the cause of our suffering. But as the God who willingly and willfully made his home amid our losses and our longings. God has come near. How do we endure? How do we endure through the shadow of suffering? And I know this is not theoretical for some of us today. We turn to our Savior who is near, even in the shadow of death. 
for the suffering Savior who purposefully ascended Calvary's tree, who did not reject that long walk up Golgotha's hill, who did not turn away as sin, death, and the devil taunted and mocked his dying body. For this Savior, there is no suffering so profound, no grieving so complete, no doubting so thorough, no worrying so draining as to keep him from the ones he came to save. There is no sickness so final, no trauma so deeply entrenched, no depression so exhausting, no addiction so confining, no pain so persistent that Jesus has not already entered it with you. There is no isolation so deep, no loneliness so terrifying, no insecurity so pervasive, no failure so final that Jesus cannot be found at its center. The societal suffering fashioned by war, gun violence, food apartheid, housing insecurity, xenophobia, and the bloodlust of empire has never been too much for the Savior who is found in the trenches of warfare, who is found next to the mother grieving her slain child, who is found alongside the hungry family in the line at the food pantry, who is found standing vigil over those who have no place to lay their heads, who is wounded in solidarity with the despised, who is found abiding with the women, men, and children exploited for our economy's profit. To the Savior who took on to himself all of this world's groaning and gasping, there is no sin so old, nor no guilt so deserved, and no shame so permanent as to keep him away from those he has loved since the beginning of time. It is his presence with us in our anguish, in our suffering, which allows us to outlast that suffering as we strengthen our hearts. Marlon, would you mind coming jumping on keys as we transition to communion? Again, church, outlast suffering with patience. Let me say it this way. We can outlast suffering patiently. What suffering has tempted you to despair today? What experience of injustice has compounded your anxiety and your anger these days? Can you be honest? Has this world's status quo begun to take up more room in your imagination and heart than the coming day of the Lord or of the enduring faithfulness of those who've gone before us? This morning, as you come to the Lord's table to receive again his body and blood, let me invite you to bring your suffering with you, to bring the suffering of your neighbors with you, to bring the suffering of our world with you. 
it is the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God that God took on our flesh so that he would be found not at a distance from our sorrows and anguish, but right there in the thick of it. His presence with us, his presence with us is what allows us to patiently outlast every suffering in this life. So come with your suffering, but come to the table this morning also with some hope. Hope that one day patience will be a relic of the past. That there will come a day when nobody says to anybody else, be patient. For when our Lord returns, when the universe is set right, when all has been redeemed, there will be no need for patience. There will be no suffering to endure. And so with the spiritual ancestors who've gone before us, with hope rooted in the coming of the Lord, with our hearts strengthened by the suffering servant, we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our victorious King, upon whose return we wait today. And you are also the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief, the suffering servant upon whom was laid our sin. You have not stood at a distance from our pain. Instead, you have assumed our nature that you might bear the weight of each of our suffering circumstances. During these Advent days, as we are held by our remembering and anticipating, show us again how you are with us in our patient outlasting. Fortify our faith that we may be kept standing until your return. And because it is you who strengthens our hearts, make our waiting joyful. A reflection of your faithfulness in the past, the future, and today. 